Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Now Matt, I'm going to jump straight in, there'll be no how you're going this morning and that sort of stuff because I'm hearing a very strong whisper out the winds out there today, the fact that you're about to go and get your uh, tap dancing shoes on and uh, set out there to be involved in the next Dancing with the Stars. I do say, know your weaknesses, Mark, <laughs> and I have a significant weakness in dancing. I've danced twice publicly in my life. Have you now? Once at my wedding, I thought that was seemed an appropriate thing to yes, do. Yes, yes. And I'm not sure that many people would have defined that as dancing. I held my darling newlywed wife tight and we moved around a dance floor. So, <laughs> Like most blokes on a wedding night, I suggest. <laughs> that's right, sort of that's thing, right. Yes. And I have done Dancing with the Stars once before back have in you? 2009. Right. And that was actually a really good experience because they pair you up with someone who is a proper dancer, a dance instructor, mm. and you spend months, in my case, learning how to do one dance. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I needed yes. every every month of those months. Did you that we nail spent. it? Well, they made a very simple routine for me. I was very appreciative of that. <laughs> and so the it's simple- a macarena with a, a few nut bush moves <laughs> sort of thrown in amongst it or something. Well it was it? actually a ballroom dance. Oh, did. So wow. I ended up spinning the girl around on my shoulder and all Jeez. sorts of fun well, things. You like refer that. to that as being simple, is a little simple dance moves. Well it was it did seem fairly simple and there were some times when they'd say, Okay, let's try this. We might just try something a bit different there, <laughs> which is, I think, <laughs> their very nice way of saying, you can't get that one, can you? <laughs> so it was actually quite a good yeah. experience. So obviously it's all about raising money. So Absolutely. that was in 2009, and they've asked me to do it again. I'm thinking I'm 15 years older than I was in 2009. <laughs> but so you've got the experience behind you. <laughs> experience, that's right. That's, I'm trading the experience for the the getting older part of yes. my body. Anyway, I think it's a good cause. It's all raising money for cancer. Good on you. I've been involved in a few cancer fundraisers over the years. In fact, way back in 2002, I think it was, the very oh. first Relay for Life. I was on that oh, committee. Yes. Tony Lawler was yes, the chairperson yes. of that committee. And so there's been lots of Relay for Life events since then. But that yep. was a really good one to be involved with. Then we did a Guinness World Record on that one. So keep an eye out for it. It's in April next year. All right, so okay. It's about a fundraiser, so yep. I've got some links on my social media pages if people want to donate Wonderful. some money just to see yeah, yeah. me look interesting on the dance floor. Oh, look, uh, I tell you what, there'll be hordes of thousands now wanting to buy <laughs> tickets, knowing the fact you're going to be turning up with your dancing shoes on. Mm. Well done, buddy. Right now, listen, uh, in regards to uh, things that are happening in, um, right now, when people start to listen to this podcast, Chances are you're not going to be in Australia because you're going to be on a flight, probably even have landed by this stage, in Japan. Is this correct? Indeed, yep. So Saturday afternoon, or mm. actually Saturday night was when I got on the flight from Sydney over to Japan. Yes. And this is actually quite an interesting one. There's an organisation called CLAIR, C-L-A-I-R. Right. And it's a Japanese government-affiliated incorporated foundation that basically reaches out to different places across the world. They've got different offices in different places around the world. Mm. And we've dealt with Claire a little bit in relation to our sister city that we have in Japan. So mm. sometimes we might be talking to them with some things that we might be doing. Anyway, they reached out to me and they said, you've got great experience with a sister city in Japan. You've got great experience as a mayor. Yep. Could you please lead a delegation of Australia and New Zealand local government delegates right. for a week visit in Japan? Yep. And so I, I looked at it and you're worried when you get random emails like this sometimes. There's so many scammers out there. You, you think, is this just another scam? Mm. Why would they want me to lead this delegation? Anyway, I did a bit more research on it and it all looks legitimate, hopefully. So so, hopefully, so there's no sort of uh, taking on a dark alley and sort of see size up your kidneys and liver and things like that? I hope when you listen to this, I'm not sitting in a bathtub saying, where are my kidneys? I'm, I'm 
I'm sure I, I won't be. But it sounds like one of those interesting things where you get to promote local government mm. ideas mm. in different areas of the world. And mm. one of the things that I think is respected around the world is our democracy, our local government system in Australia, yep. New South Wales in particular, seems to be quite good. Yep. And so this will be a sharing of ideas, but probably from the Japanese perspective, we'll be going to one council in particular, a rural council, right. and we'll spend some time there, we'll look at their operations, and there'll be five of us, I think actually myself and five other delegates from Australia and New Zealand, who'll be looking at that, and I suppose giving them some advice around things mm. that they can do and things that we might do here. And mm. sure, you'll learn things as well and you might bring some of those ideas yeah. back to Australia. Uh, so it'll be an interesting experience. I do want to point out it's not costing double ratepayers any money at so all. So this is all funded by the, the Clare Group? Not quite. So they said it didn't have everything perfect about it. They right. said once you land in Japan, we'll pick you up, we've got accommodation for you, we'll take you around, you've just got to get yourself there. Okay. And and I don't think it's right for double ratepayers to pay for that. Yep. But more so to like the point, an Uber ride out to where you got to get to, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> well, we have a policy at council, that, and I I think this is a good policy mm. that council will not pay for any international travel for councillors. I've been on a number of overseas trips representing Dubbo mm. and I've always paid for those myself. I've taken sometimes my wife or my kids along those, always pay for those myself. That gets lost to the public sometimes, mm. but this is another one of those. So I'm actually yeah. paying for the flights from Dubbo to Sydney and Sydney to Japan myself, and yep. then once I land in Japan, Oh, so when they clear. say get there, it means literally sort of from Dubbo to Japan. From Dubbo to there, that's right, yeah. <laughs> okay, probably an Uber's not going to do the trick for you that way. Yeah, no, I'm not sure if Uber's opened up the water, international they? travel yet, have they? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, again, look, I'm okay with that. That's yeah. not the end of the world. Sure, it'd be nice if someone else paid for those flights, but in terms of representing the city, I, I think it's a worthwhile yeah. endeavour to do. And again, our policy says no international travel, so I'm okay with that. So when you read on various social media sites that this mm. is costing the community money, it's costing Dubbo ratepayers zero. Diddly I'm paying swat. for it out of my pocket. Yeah. And then Claire is paying for it within yeah. Japan itself. But again, I think good experience yeah. and good chance to represent Dubbo on the international stage. Yeah, good on you. Now, speaking of international stage, citizenship ceremony. Um, now, we talked about this last week and sort of raised it briefly. Um, during the week, of course, you had the, uh, the latest citizenship ceremony took place last Thursday. Uh, Tuesday, 35 new citizens. Uh, that's a it seems to be a really good number we're sort of constantly now getting, aren't we? Just just in regards to this, uh, I know you're going to go into some details in regards to what happened. Is there any of this linked to, we're talking right now about uh, the large levels of uh, immigration. Um, is this uh, benefiting here in Dubbo? Is this sort of an example of how we're benefiting from this new influx of uh, migrants into our country? I absolutely think it's a fantastic thing for Dubbo. And we're mm. learning a lot about different cultures from around the world. This particular citizenship ceremony was on Tuesday the 28th of November, 35 new citizens. Mm. Now, we used to have the ceremonies about three months apart, and we used to have, I remember even back to the old City Council days, it might have been even three or four months apart, and we might have had 15 or 20. We're regularly having 35, and we've actually brought them closer together now because mm. they're starting to get too many. We're starting to get into the 40s, mm. and I like to try and make them very personal and very memorable. In fact, one person there at the ceremony on Tuesday, his sister became a new citizen and he'd become a new citizen in Sydney many years ago. And he said, oh, I really like this ceremony mm. better. Mine felt a bit like a factory just mm. pumping them through. Next. He said there were a lot more Next. people. Yeah. yeah, and it just wasn't as personal. So he was actually really impressed with it. But we want to keep it smaller to do that. We do them more often. So to give you an idea, 
20th of November we had this one. We held the last one on the 5th of September, so a bit yes. over two months ago. Yeah, yeah. Before that, we held two in July. Wow. Now, we held two because we had one in Wellington yep. and one in Dubbo. So there were two ceremonies in July. So mm. that's what I mean, July, September, November. Mm. And, the, and the numbers w- have been consistently around that 35, 40, haven't they? Absolutely right. And yeah. the next one we'll do will be on Australia Day. So that'll be January. So that's again, a big one too. So. A, another or less than two months away for that yeah. particular one. So it is nice. And I've talked about it before that we used to have people from the UK, New Zealand, Canada, maybe a few from the US, and then the Asian subcontinent, a smattering. Mm. It's completely reversed now, although this one was a bit unusual because there were a few, few people from the UK, which mm. when I looked down the list, I went, oh, this is a bit unusual. We've got a few from the UK mm. in the past. Yeah. That was the norm. But this time we had people from Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, India. Yeah. Every time we had people from India, yeah. Pakistan, uh, Iran, we had Lebanon. Yeah, wow. Um, and again, there's a real diversity the there, isn't there? Oh, like, absolutely. And plus, in regards to it, so the people who are coming here now, Matt, uh, into Dubbo, are, are we talking about professional people who have uh, have come from uh, these countries with a professional degree based background or, or they a trade based background? Or what sort of type of background are we looking at? Typically, they are. Professionals, they do mm. have degrees. They're not always using that degree, mm. but Indian people, for example, they always, it seems to be a part of their culture that you go through school, you get your degree, and then you go out to the big wide world after mm. that. Some of them might have even been in Australia getting their degree, for example. So most of them have got degrees, but mm. that's not all, that's not exclusive. Mm. But you do find there were teachers, there were nurses there, there were a couple of doctors. Right. So you've got a, a whole range of different professions. But the story, what I, and I say to them during the ceremony, I want to talk to as many of the 35 as I possibly can and find out their story. Yep. You can't do that. There's not enough time after the ceremony. We mm. put on a, a little afternoon tea for them, mm. but you just can't get around to all 35 and individually have that conversation. But the few that I managed to get to, I, I say, what brought you to Australia mm. and what brought you to Dubbo? Mm. And the answers are so varied. What we typically find, I mean, when I say what brought them to Dubbo, they normally say the great council you've got in Dubbo, so we tick that off. Okay, what was the second reason? A dancing star right here. (laughs) That's right. We (laughs) we wanted to see the mayor dance. (laughs) But typically they talk about the fact that they were looking for somewhere that wasn't a Sydney or a Melbourne. So Mm. often people come via Sydney or sometimes even via Melbourne. Mm. So they probably have come from some of these places like India, highly populated country. Mm. Getting to somewhere like Sydney probably feels a bit the same, so Mm. they're Try and look for something a bit different. And so Do they often, have family out here, a lot of the guys as well come out here? It varies. Yeah. Sometimes they'll be the first one and then, oh, by the way, my brother, my uncle, my sister, whatever is now coming, or my relative was already out here yeah. and I wanted to come. Yeah. But it does come down to jobs. Yeah. They'll be in Sydney or they'll be somewhere, even they'll be overseas, and they'll look and they'll see jobs advertised mm. in Dubbo. Mm. And sometimes that's the driver, but they all talk about the fact then they'll do a bit of research. Mm. They're not going to move to somewhere where they go, it's terrible. And sometimes some of them will move to Dubbo because I've got to serve a little bit of time on my regional visa time mm. frame to be able to get my permanent residency or yeah. to tick off my requirements for my visa. But, oh, I got out here and mm. it's fantastic. Mm. And organisations like Oroscon do a really good job where they mm. do try and make the community very welcoming. And what I really like about it is I've learnt about a whole range of different cultural activities from around the world by having different groups here. So Diwali, for example, Diwali is huge in India. A couple of weeks ago, Diwali was celebrated here in Dubbo by nowhere near the same magnitude, mm. but by certainly a number of people from So what's Diwali? India. What's that? 
you could almost describe it, and I'm probably going to offend some people here, but you could almost describe it as the Indian version of Christmas. Oh, okay, it's a, right. It's a time right. yep. where you get together with family, you have some holidays, you do some gift giving. One thing that's curious in India mm. is it's a time to paint your house. Oh. So you're, even your business. So <laughs> there is... What, literally, just that every year they paint the house in a different colour or something? They paint a different part of it typically. Oh. But one of the things that's Cut. fascinating is if you go down various markets, places where you'll see trinkets sold, like a typical market sort of event in mm. various cities in India, for the few weeks leading up to Diwali, there'll be suddenly these pop-up businesses of paint mm. and there'll be a plethora of different paints of different colours and they do, I'm sure, six months worth of trade in a few weeks. Yes, that's right. Because people yeah. have to buy their paint because it's Diwali. You've got yeah, to yeah. go and repaint. It's part of the section. tradition. Yeah. yeah, right. And so that's part of it. But yeah, again, and I'm happy for people mm. to tell me that I'm completely wrong here, but my impression of Diwali is the Indian version of Christmas. So what we do yeah. at Christmas, we have feasts, we get together with family, we give yeah. presents, all those things. We don't do painting, but we, well, sometimes you do. <laughs> Some people do. If, you, right, if yeah, you've yeah. got your family coming home, yeah, yeah. oh, we better knows, get the house looking right? nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it seems like that sort of event. But again, here in mm. Dubbo, there was a, a group of Indian people who mm. were celebrating Diwali, talking about Diwali and, yeah. and doing things that were related to that. So tell me, um, in regards to one of the... the Issues, I suppose, surrounding um, the, the current debate and discussion about the high levels of migration is in regards to housing. How are we going in regards to housing um, our new influx of migrants here into our community? Is it, it an issue? It is an issue, definitely. There's no doubt about it. It's mm. still one of the things we're working on. As you know, we've released blocks of land in Keswick. There are other builders that are promoting or progressing their various building works as quick as they possibly can because mm. there is that demand there. And it's a, an interesting one because... The demand is absolutely there. Interest rate rises and cost of living pressures and inflation have made it a bit harder for some of those people to get into those houses. Rental, that's gone up, obviously. Mm. We've got very low rental vacancy rates. So you've got a few things conspiring against mm. us. Mm. With all of that, there are people still, still wanting to come definitely here. Definitely wanting yeah. to come here. Yeah. So it's a, an ongoing issue. It's something we have regular discussions with the government about, something that we're regularly working on ourselves. I don't know that anyone's got the magic solution, the, mm. the silver bullet, but we're working on that. But look, I do love citizenship ceremonies. Oh, and, they're wonderful. And welcome yeah. to all those people to Dubbo. And that's, they've already been here in Dubbo for a time, but mm. that's one thing that they always tell me. Every ceremony I do, people say, it's so welcoming here in Dubbo. And even if I was only planning on coming here for five minutes or for five years or forever, mm. I've just been welcomed and made to feel like this is now home, yeah, which is that's fantastic. That's lovely to hear. Now, driving around town, uh, for all those observant little bodies out there, you may well have noticed the fact that uh, there's been the new installation of the rhinos. When I say the new installation, there's been a bit of an update. It's all about painting and things like this. Uh, all of the uh, the artworks that the that the kids uh, won the prizes for for the rhinos, it looks as though they've all been installed and updated. Is this correct? Yeah, so you've got three new design rhinos at the moment. Now, you right. may remember many months ago, Councillor Matt Wright, who's the chairman of Spark, and myself and some of our staff mm. did the judging. Actually, sorry, Erin Williamson from the Dubbo Business Chamber as well. Yep. Uh, we did the judging for the design. So lots of designs were submitted by the various schools around Dubbo, and we had to judge those, which was a tough job because mm. there were some great designs in there. Uh, and some of them, yeah, some of them were conceptual. They, the artwork mightn't have been perfect that they submitted, but their concept was great. Mm. Another one spent a huge amount of time on the artwork. So mm. it was a really tough job. So we mm. picked out the winners of that. And then the exciting part was they then got 
they're designed to be put on a rhino. So, so now, now professional painters did the job? Correct. So we yeah. then had professional artists who yeah. come along and they had to modify the designs a little bit sometimes sure. because the kids did a 2D drawing mm. and that was being translated to a 3D image. Yep. So they had to basically join the dots a little bit. But yep. when you looked at the design, and I looked at one of them, I went out for the launch for one of them and looked mm. at the design they drew and then what was on there, and it looked pretty good. Yeah. It, it looked representative of what they had. So where had. can you see them? Where are the three? Well, I'll just I'll mention the names first of the Oh, three. yeah, the kids, absolutely. Yeah, so Madison Roach from Dubbo Senior Campus, her design is now out there. Montana McNair from Dubbo Christian School. Right. And Alana Hark, I think it's pronounced, is that right, from St. John's College? H-O-A-Q-U-E. So Hark or Hake? Yes. Yeah, so... Yep. Those were the three. Laura Holland was the artist oh, who was chosen. Yes, yeah, yes, so yes. she was Saint John's student herself. Yeah, there you go. So they, she was chosen to actually translate those to the actual concepts. Mm. So where you'll find them is you've got the Newell Highway. So on the Newell Highway, the south side of the Newell Highway, coming in from Parks, there's a rest stop oh, there. Oh yes, yes. Now that's a really good one because that rhino is installed in an area that's off the road in an area that's a, a rest area. Yep. So you can safely get to that, and that's where we went for the launch of the designs because it was safest to have students. Is that just out of town a little bit? Is it is, fine? yeah. Yep. Past yep. Obley Road, turn off to the zoo. Yes. You keep going a little bit past that. It's on the right-hand side yep. after Another that. one. Yeah, so that's one there. Uh, there's also the one on the Narromine Road, and there's the one on the Mitchell Highway coming in from Wellington. Now, Oh, very prominent positions. Yeah, they are. And we do say to people... You're not meant to stop beside them. They're on highways. You're mm. not meant to stop beside them and have photos taken. You're meant to just look at them and admire them as you go past. But I do see people stopping, and it's not technically legal. You're stopping beside a highway. Mm. But mm. I still think it's great that people love the idea. And they of, love the idea of the rhino and what yeah, the photo. And stopping that's it. Photo. Yes. So it is something that's quite nice. And I just like the idea. I mean, this is this whole rhino trail that started back in 2014. Mm. We had rhinos going out from. Orange, Bathurst, through you know, all the way to Sydney kind of thing to mm. lead people to Dubbo as such. Yep. And those designs have been in place for some time. Again, time to update them, time to change them. We mm. change them from time to time. We've changed the one up at Apex Oval, depending on events that might be on. Yes. So it's a good little way of having something that's consistent, but also a bit of variety. And I remember a long time ago, my brother has been in Boston in the US of A for decades. Right. And so we've been to visit him a few times. And I remember one time going through... Boston, mm. and they had cows, and there would have been at least 50 cows, maybe right. more. Someone Made you feel like you're back in India again. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> these ones weren't moving, though. These ones were still, there were plastic cows, right. life-size, and they were painted with a whole range of designs. Yeah, right. And I thought it was fantastic and fascinating, and I remember coming back to the oh, it was pretty cool. I think it would be great if we could do something like that, but yeah. I didn't actually do anything with it. It was just a bit of a thought bubble. And then it was several years later that the design of the idea came up with Taronga Western Plains Zoo yeah. and the Taronga Zoo in Sydney to do the rhinos. And I went, oh, that's just like those cows over in Boston. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know where they got the idea from, but yep. it, it was a popular tourist attraction. I know people mm. were going around the cow trail in Boston, and I know people do go around here and try and get photos with all those mm. rhinos. So keep an eye out for those three designs. Well, we don't well have done. the big potatoes and we don't have the big prawns, but we've got lots and lots of little rhinos. We've got a crash of rhinos. A crash of rhinos? A crash of rhinos. Apparently oh, that's what a go. is called in rhinos, a crash of rhinos. It's a good one for a trivia contest. It is, day. that's right. I'll yeah. put that into my memory banks. That's right. But one of the... Oh, look, congratulations to those three artists for a mm. start. But I think there'll be things we'll do with those rhinos in years to come and just keep an eye out for those different designs. But yeah, congratulations to those kids and yeah. well done to Laura for interpreting those. Absolutely. And get out and have a look at them. And during the week, Matt, uh, you had the pleasure, I'm sure, of uh, going out to the Royal Flying Doctor Service out there for a presentation where 
they gave a year in review. Now, this is a magic organisation. They do a terrific uh, amount of stuff for the community, don't they? And, and, of course, across New South Wales and Australia, really. So the year in review, are you able to sort of to enlighten us with a little bit of what the year was like? Absolutely. And this is just our section. The southeastern section is, mm. I'm sure, what this area is called around here. And there are lots of organisations. My Rotary Club, South Dubbo Rotary Club, has done lots of fundraising. Millions of dollars have been mm. contributed by that. They've got a very active fundraising group. What they do is quite unbelievable. And they've got that visitor experience that are out there now. Yes, it's magic. I think from memory, they did initially say they were expecting about 40,000 visitors a year through that. But in the year review, it had combined numbers between Dubbo and Broken Hill. They took about 60,000. So oh. I think it would probably be right that they get about 40,000 a year through that. And people, numbers. It is. People that see that and, and look at that, talk to me about it, and they just go, wow, that video they had, because they've got some videos about some real-life examples mm. where people have been injured and they've come in to rescue them as such, mm. and you hear these real-life stories, and you know that people would be dead mm. if we didn't have the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Absolutely. But they do a lot of proactive stuff as well. But I grabbed some of the numbers, which I yeah. thought were quite fascinating. 68,000 occasions of service. Now, that's not 68,000 really? emergencies yeah. because they do do lots of proactive things. They do dental clinics, for example. They right. do things where they're trying to help health in regional areas, hmm. but obviously some of those are emergency situations 68,000. 68,000, what they call occasions of service. Right, right. They've got 15 aircraft over the last year. They've flown 3 million kilometres. And that's, this is just the, the region out this here? This is the southeastern section. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 4,609 inter-hospital transfers. So keeping in mind that mm. they do have some contracts with the government to transfer people. So it's not just those emergency retrievals. Yeah. Sometimes it is, we've got Billy, he needs to get down to a hospital and they need to transfer them via air because mm. it's obviously a, an urgent situation. You're looking at a week. You, it's incredible. You're, you're looking at a lot, aren't you? Wow. Uh, They've had 91 emergency retrievals. So those things that the Royal yep. Functional Service is known for, 91. So mm. again, you look at that and that's only a small part of it. But gee, mm. when you go out west, and I know I've been on fundraising events where we've gone out into western areas. Yep. When you say you're fundraising for the Royal Functional Service, people have got their hand in their pocket before mm. you know it. Because yep. they know that one day they might be on the side of the road or out in the paddock yeah. and their only hope is that the Royal Flying Doctor Service lands somewhere nearby. Yeah. And you've got 348 staff employed wow. and you've got the, the service has been going now for 95 yeah. years. Goodness me. So quite incredible. So that was the year in review from the RFDS and again, it was a pretty big audience there. I would have estimated at least 50, maybe 60 people in okay. the audience just to hear about what's happened for the year. Again, it does capture the imagination. Anyone that I know that works for them, anyone that's on their board, when they talk about different employments or, or employers I've had over the years mm. or different boards they might be on, when they say the RFDS, everyone, oh, mm. oh, tell me more about that. It does mm. capture the imagination of people. And I think people are just fascinated by the whole concept of it. So, yeah, it's worthwhile yeah. going and seeing. If you haven't seen that, worthwhile going and seeing it or going and seeing it again. Yeah, well done to all involved out there. I had uh, a couple of walks this week, Matt, down by the river. Uh, it's been nice, actually. I've been back this week from Sydney and uh, had the opportunity to sort of to walk around our, our uh, beautiful track, O'Reilly track down there and uh, through the river system and notice the fact that there's... Um, bit of concreting going in there. Um, sort of it's in a little spot there down there where the, I suppose it's very close anyway to where the park run begins. Um, talk us through this. Is, are we extending the, where the concreting uh, was uh, 
sort of put in there where the bend sort of got started to wash away and we put some concreting there in the pathway. Are we doing the, the whole area of that track with concrete or, or is just this little sort of section getting done? There's, this is a 510-metre section. Right. Now, I want to just put some cold water and some rumours for a start. Mm-hmm. I've heard one rumour that I've demanded that we extend this concrete pathway because my park run times will be better. Well, it's 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 a fair rumour. Yeah, you know, and uh, and it's know. correct. I actually well, I, yes. When we did put in the last bit of concrete section, then my park run times did improve. It did. That's, so that's, that's that's the facts. It seems like a reasonable thing, doesn't mm-hmm. it, for me to do to say, look, my park run times. I want to take a few seconds off mm-hmm. them so I could train, or I could eat better, mm-hmm. or I could just get counsel to spend some money on extending the concrete path. That's the option I'll go for. Well, it's, it's interesting. I never realised you would have such power, but anyway. <laughs> that's, that's right, exactly. <laughs> so that's, that's rumour number one, which I found interesting. Excellent. Rumour number two is that for me to get my, inverted commas, e-scooters mm. out there on the community or on Trackerati, mm. then the New South Wales government has told us that we need to have concrete all the way around Trackerati, so I need to get that all extended to concrete before we can finally put e-scooters on there. That's a rather interesting one because, uh, as far as I'm aware, New South Wales government, last time I uh, spoke to them, uh, are still up in the air in regards to the whole nature of e-scooters anyway, so I don't know how they wanted to be demanding anything in regards to this space. Yeah, they're still working on some different concepts and they're doing some trials around (laughs) it, but the Trackerati would be fine as crushed granite or concrete. Pretty sure, yeah, yeah, I think you could do an e-scooter on that anyway. So, okay, right, right, that's the second one. The third one that I heard was that that this is me looking after my mates and giving work to some of my concrete mates. Oh, have you? Now, most people don't realise that I... You've got a wide diversity of mates, haven't you? I do. You? I, do. You really I do. don't have any concrete yeah, you mates, You look after them well the sound of things. That's right. <laughs> um, so the contract has actually gone to a company called Semler Building Projects. Mm-hmm. Close mate of yours? Well, I don't actually know who owns Semler Building Projects. I okay. imagine it's someone with a surname of Semler. Yes, that makes and sense. And I do apologise if I do know someone in that organisation, but I, I don't actually know who's in that. So I don't know that I've got any linkages there whatsoever mm-hmm. to be able to direct some of those funds to there. And if, if I was going to do that, wouldn't I just take some money out of the till and hand it over to them? Why bother about going That would be the easier process? option anyway, wouldn't it, it I would think? would be. The reality as to why we're doing it is the same reason we did the last bit of concreting. Mm-hmm. You'll remember that there was some erosion. There was a soil conservation service report way back from 2018 that the last council ignored that talked about the erosion of the mm. riverbank after yep. the low-level bridge on Tamworth Street. And so there's some erosion there on the riverbank. Some work should have been done to rectify that. It wasn't, and then some of that riverbank fell away. Because of that, we were worried about the path there. One day, people out there walking, running, mm. riding, and that falls away and they're in the river. Mm. So we moved the path further away from the river and we made that a concrete path. It's the same with this one. Mm. This goes along a bit further from that. And if you think about the Macquarie River as it flows down, it then takes a sharp left. And that's when, obviously, more erosion can happen. Again, some work needs to be done on that riverbank to stop that erosion continuing. But... We were worried that that would start to chew it away mm. too far and people would be on that path and then they'd be in the river. We've had a few examples of that in recent times, haven't we? We Wellington, have, exactly here. right. Yeah. yeah. So we're putting the concrete path in further across, further mm. away from the river. We'll vegetate that area closer to the river, for example. Mm. And so this 510 metre replacement, two and a half wide, two and a half metres wide it'll be, basically will run from that area along there and down past to basically where the toilets are along that sort of area. Oh, yeah. It doesn't extend yet 
past the area where the bubbler is. That'll probably be a future project. Yep. Um, the, there's a, another 110 metre section that'll kind of go north along the existing granite pathway. But that's probably February, maybe March next year. Yep. That'll be done. So it is about improving Trekkeroli, very popular so area. Is this this uh, money from council budget? This is actually money that we got from a grant. Okay. And it's still public money, so you still want to be careful with public money. But I have heard some people say, what a waste of money, go and fix some potholes. You put in grant applications, and when you put in grant applications, you say, here's the project that I want to do with this grant. And so in this particular scenario, we put in a grant application for money for this particular path. We can't then take it and then say, oh, we got the money from the government. Now mm. we'll just go and stick it in some potholes over here. (laughs) You've got to do an acquittal of those funds. And also, I wouldn't want to be mayor of an organisation that just took money with one story and then just change where it went. You, you want it to be used where you said it should be used. That yep. would be honest and ethical to do that. So, yes, we've got the money for this and we'll be using the money for that same project. Yeah. And that seems like the Makes right, sense. Yeah, right yep. fair and reasonable thing to do. So that'll take uh, a little bit of time. That, that'll take probably, I'd say, about a week or so. As you said, you've already seen hmm. the work there started. You'll probably see it being boxed up and some of the – steel reinforcement being put in there um, and then concrete's being poured. I think they've probably even started pouring the concrete by the time people... Yep. Oh, they have, yeah. No, it's, it's very much uh, looking like a concrete path right now. It's, yeah. it's coming together really well. Yeah. And it actually, it was interesting because when I was walking around, um, I'd heard about the fact the concrete pathing was sort of coming in. I was actually expecting it to be sort of where the, the current path is. Yeah, and, right. And uh, as soon as I was walking up, I saw it sort of a little bit off to the left of the concrete path. I bet you this has got to be for erosion reasons. Oh, there you, you go. You, you could almost pick it, you know. Like, I don't, I'm, you know, like the Forrest Gump, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not a smart man, but I'm, <laughs> I'm a man who obviously worked it out pretty quickly, the fact that was going to be the case. Um, so, there look, you yeah, go, it looks effective. Using common sense and logic, where right. will that ever get you? I don't know. I don't know. One day somewhere, who knows? <laughs> Now, just in regards to uh, concreting, I know there's been um, a little bit of discussion in the media recently with our, uh, our new whiz-bang toilets down there, where the concrete toilets have been put in there um, on um, the area next to the the river, over on West Dubbo side there. Now, it appears as though there's been a couple of cracks that have formed um, in these uh, in our new uh, whiz-bang setup. Um, is this this a problem? So you're talking about the 3D printed toilets? The 3D printed toilets. In that's Lions exactly. Park West. They're the whiz-bang ones. Yeah, that's right, the whiz-bang ones. They're, they're the whiz-bang ones. I, I like the terminology. <laughs> uh, so a few things with that. Uh, there are some hairline cracks in that, and mm. we certainly, uh, some of our staff, some builders over there were doing some photos around that particular project, and we were looking at, there was a couple of our, us there as councillors, and, and, and there were some hairline cracks. And the staff that were there said that it's pretty hard in our environment that has changes in weather to get concrete that doesn't get some sort of cracks in it. In mm. paths, when you lay paths, you put cracks in them. You put mm. lines when you, you notice any path, you'll see the actual deliberate cracks, and, and cracks probably not the right word, it's probably a more technical term, but you'll <laughs> see those lines they put in there yep. to basically almost form that particular crack or give somewhere for that crack to go. Mm. When you've got these concrete structures that's been printed in the way it has, you're always going to expect some sort of movement, some hairline cracks. And our staff said that, one of the options initially was to cement render that whole toilet block, but mm. they wanted to see how it would go with just being exposed as it was mm. and leaving it, but also, more to the point, they wanted to see how it performed and mm. how many cracks did form. They knew there were always going to be cracks. Mm. It's not structural 
deformities that are well, about to collapse. Well, I was going to ask you the question. Is it structurally, is it still sound? Absolutely right. It's yeah. still stronger than a brick wall. And I don't want someone to go and test that with a sledgehammer, please. Mm. But that the, the MPA rating on that is stronger than, say, concrete on a driveway. Mm. That wall would be stronger than a brick wall. So you get these little hairline cracks, not really that big an issue. And a couple of things there. Our staff said you could render it. And you wouldn't see it. And render sometimes gets cracks mm, in it. it does, Anyone that's, that's right. got a cement rendered house would know they've probably got Movement some cracks in there. That, that's yeah. It, yeah. Uh, but they said you'd, you'd render it, you'd paint it, you'd never have those cracks. And if you had a few little cracks, you'd easily fill them in and just repaint it. You'd never see them. With the cracks that are there, they said they're not even big enough to worry about filling, but you could fill them and then mm. you wouldn't really notice them. Or they said you could even paint it and the mm. cracks are small enough that mm. you'd fill it as you painted it so you wouldn't notice them there. We've deliberately left it bare because we want to see how it behaves and mm. performs over a full year of extreme temperatures because Dubbo gets pretty hot. Yep, yep. we're going to find degrees, out about that this week. Yes. That's right, 40 degrees plus in the shade. Mm. And then it gets pretty cold. You get down into the negatives, not often, but a few mm. negatives during the middle of winter. So it's a fairly big difference there. And you've got sun that hits that. And I was talking to an electrician just recently, and he talked about the fact that you've got conduit that's designed for outdoors. And they, he said that that conduit, even though it's designed for outdoors, in the Australian sun, you put that conduit outdoors, after a number of years, it still starts to break down and get brittle, even though that conduit is rated, because you've just mm. got such a harsh sun in the yes. Australian outdoors, in, in places like Dubbo, where you, you haven't got smog or pollution to restrict some of that sunlight coming through. So mm. it's a harsh environment. So let's test it out and see how that goes. Mm. The other thing that I keep hearing about is this term of a pedo toilet, mm. a pedophile toilet. Yeah, right, okay. And I was confused about that in the first place. I said, so... What is a pedo toilet and what's a non-pedo toilet? I don't mm. really understand the difference. Now, I've learnt a bit more about pedo toilet. And a pedo toilet is apparently one where you could climb up over the outside and look in. So mm. if anyone sees people as they go past that toilet in Lions Park West climbing up over the outside or having a selfie stick over the outside of the toilet, then please let the authorities know. I was going to say, just do the know. right thing. That's Absolutely, right. yeah, yeah. And the other thing apparently you, you do is that if I'm there with a young child, then I'll stand outside while my young child goes in, but I don't know who's in the toilet. Now, I've had boys and girls. We, yeah. in, in our kids, we've got boys and girls. Yeah. And I know that if I was with not my wife there and if I had my mm. daughters with me, then I would say to my daughters, when they were very young obviously, come into the male toilet and go into the male toilet mm. rather than just let them go randomly off into the female toilet, mm. not knowing who might be in there. And my wife did the same with my son. If my if I wasn't there, my son would go to the female yeah. toilet. So Wouldn't you do that with any sort of public toilet? Well, you would think so. But then I learnt what a non-pedo toilet is. Right. And down in Wellington in Cameron Park, mm. there were new toilets built down there that are single cubicle. So, for example, you've got a toilet that opens a door, you go in, there's no openings at the top at all, and you close the door behind that. So there's only the one person in there, which is the person going to the toilet. So then, as a parent, you could stand outside there knowing no one else could be in there because that person, that child has gone in there and then there's a door that's closed. The problem with Cameron Park toilets, and many people in Wellington have complained bitterly about these toilets down there because they took a number of toilets, and I don't know how many were there before, but a number of cubicles, a number of urinals, male and female. And for example, buses would stop there mm. as they came through Wellington. Okay, everyone, bus stop. And of course, that was good for the local businesses, grab a coffee, maybe buy something while you're there. And then everyone could get off the bus, go through the toilets and then get back on. They don't stop there anymore because Same there's a toilet. male single cubicle, a female single cubicle and a disabled toilet. And you've got to have the MLAC 
system key to be able to get into the to the disabled. So essentially, two toilets and a bus driver says, "Well, if we stop here, that's an hour, maybe not mm. an hour, but maybe half an hour, just to get people through the toilets. Well, we'll keep going." One of the things that we thought was great about the three D printed toilet was. Yeah. $316,000, that's a similar amount to what was paid for the Cameron Park toilets, but we got multiple cubicles in the male yeah. and a urinal, multiple cubicles in the female for the same money that they got essentially a yeah. couple down there in Cameron Park. So, yeah, I, I don't know that it's a valid accusation to be making. And I, I was actually at the airport the other day and I took notice of the toilets there. Yeah. You couldn't see over the top of them. There were multiple cubicles inside, and if you had a oh. son or a daughter that went inside, you don't know who's in there. So, does that mean Sydney Airport's going to stop closing, or opening these pedo toilets, as no. they're called? So, I just think it's an interesting scenario. But mm. we've got lots of toilets around like that across the country, across of the world. We have. And if you're taking care of your child, then you're not just randomly sending them into places. This is, this is the thing, though. If, if we consistently let fear override common sense, this is where we have problems then in our society and we get situations whereby uh, scenarios of single toilets are going to be popping up everywhere as opposed to what common sense will tell us, we need more. And it's, it's, it's not just within the toilets, it's within so many other areas of our society where suddenly the social media activists and all those sort of carry-oners will engage the, the fear of society and get into our fear part of our, our brain, activate that, enlarge that, make it go on fire... And what we lose, we lose the common sense. And I, I'm, I've never heard the, the term pedo toilet before. I didn't actually understand it was mm. a term. But there are a lot of toilets out there that are like this. Now, I haven't seen any move by any government authority to shut down all those other toilets. I'm not sure why the target should be the 3D printed toilet being well, the pedo toilet. I think you made toilet. mention of the fact that I think there's possibly a part of the reason why because it's different and because there's there's personal agendas and this sort of stuff some people may have in regards to it, that this is why, you know, let, let's throw now the fear factor in. What's another reason why we can sort of denounce this and put it down? Well, and I think that's a really important part. When you do innovate, when you do things that are different, people are prone to be critical for no other reason than it's a bit new and sometimes people don't like change. But mm. without a doubt, 3D printing, it's amazing how many different forums or different groups I'm talking to mm. that want to know about that because this will be a way to solve some of the housing problems that you mentioned earlier yeah. in the podcast. Yeah. Without a doubt, this will be a much more common building method. Fast forward 10 years, people won't be blinking an eye at a 3D gantry being set up and printing some facility, some structure, some house. Yep. It'll just be, oh, yep, there's another That's it. method of construction. The same as You've got weatherboard or you've got brick veneer or you've got cement render. You've got 3D printer. It'll just be another method that people That's use right. and they'll make their choices based on that. Now, Australia Day Award nominations. We, uh, we made mention briefly of this last week in regards to it because uh, we talked about the, the Dubbo Day Award recipients and uh, we also talked about briefly the whole idea that of course, on the 26th of January, we give out the Australia Day Awards and we're looking for nominations for citizens here in our wonderful community uh, who we feel as are worthy recipients to receive one of these awards. So sounds like people can start to nominate. Matt, um, they jump online, go to the normal sort of process. Is that the way? Absolutely right. Just go to our dubbo.nsw.gov.au page and you can find those nomination forms there. And I'll run through the different categories we've got. So we've got 
Australia nominations in Dubbo and Wellington. So those awards will be given out on the Australia Day event. So that'll be on the 25th of January as a twilight event. That's right. In That's Wellington's Wellington. 25th, Correct. isn't it? Yep. And then Dubbo as a morning event on the 26th of January. So the ones that are in common, and these have grown up from the old Wellington Shire Council and the old Dubbo City Council. These were the awards those two council areas had. So we've stuck with those same awards going forward after the amalgamation. So they're slightly different. In common, both communities have Citizen of the Year, Senior Citizen of the Year, Young Citizen of the Year, Sports Person of the Year, and Young Sports Person of the Year. Mm. So they're the five, and they're probably fairly common across most Australia Day ceremonies you'd see across the nation. Mm. And then over the years, I know Dubbo, and obviously the same thing happened in Wellington, there have been suggestions for a few different ones. So I know in Dubbo, because I was involved with these ones back in Dubbo City Council, Services to Sports Award yep. is a Dubbo-specific one, and that was brought about by the fact that so many of these sports people, or young sports people in particular, that were thanking mm. all these different people that helped them get there, mm. we sat back and thought about it and thought, gee, it takes a lot of people behind the scenes for that person to be able to do that. So this could be a coach, it could be an administrator, it could be the grounds person who turns up each week, it could be the person uh, who's turned up for the last 30 years running the canteen or things like that, I suppose. Anything that you can see has helped those sports people do what they yeah. do. And it doesn't yeah, yeah. need to be someone that's made it to the Olympics. It's just someone in the under 10, as, as you said, just, uh, for the last 30 years. Yeah. Someone that won one previously, it might have even been this year, was someone I know that was involved in little athletics while their daughter was involved, which often mm. happens. Yep. But then years after, I think probably for 10 years after his daughter had finished little athletics, he was still there yeah, doing the same long. job. And yep. for many people, they do get involved with some of those activities because their kids are involved. But mm. I remember saying to him at one stage before he won this award, I said, you're still doing that job little athletics? Well done, because mm. your daughter hasn't done this for a long time. His daughter was off at Union, wasn't yeah, even in yeah. Dubbo anymore. Yeah, He's still yeah. turning up on a Friday night to little athletics and helping out all those other it's parents unreal. there. So it's that type of thing. Yep. And then the other one is, in Dubbo is the cultural person of the year. Mm. And again, that was brought forward by an organisation called Dubbo Arts and suggested by Dubbo Arts. And the idea there was you've got sports person and young sports person, but we've got a lot of culture in Dubbo Mm. now. Now, sometimes the citizen of the year, for example, might be involved in cultural pursuits, Mm. but they thought it would be appropriate. And this is after we built the theatre, after we had the Western Plains Cultural Centre, after it was really obvious that we had a real cultural heartbeat in Dubbo, Mm. then a cultural person of the year. And that's been really good as well to promote culture in the community. So they're the two extra ones in Dubbo. In Wellington, you have one called the Community Event of the Year. Right. And then another one called the Community Service slash Achievement Award. So with the Community Event Award, just to sort of clarify that for people, um, does that mean that the actual, the organising committee is other people who are nominated or is there an individual who's uh, actually nominated for that? It's pretty flexible. It really Mm. is whatever suits that particular event. I would typically think that it would be this event's a great event and so the committee would be the ones who would pick up that award. Mm. But they, the award goes to the event as mm. such. So the ABC Gala Festival event is the event of the year. Yeah. I think it was a way, and maybe someone in Wellington can correct me on this one, but I think it was a way to celebrate some of the great things that were happening in Wellington. I'm, I'm sure someone sat back and went, gee, we've got some good stuff mm. happening in Wellington. Mm. There's lots of different events. There's the Wellington Boot, for example. Mm. There's yep. the 
vintage fair and there's so there's all these different things people said maybe we should recognize the best event of the year mm. so i'm sure it was born of something like that okay someone in wellington could correct me and tell me exactly how it came about but again it's a way to celebrate that things are happening and then the community service achievement award is probably something where it really is someone just doing something mm. in the community a little bit different some sort of community services so yeah. again those can be interpreted. There, there are guidelines, certainly, in those nomination forms, but they can be interpreted interpreted a little bit differently depending on what you feel. One of the things I always sort of find with uh, with people who are uh, very generous with their time is that they're most very, very humble people and and sort of they just go about their job. This is what I do. You know, this is how I go about uh, contributing to the community. And for these people, um, quite often, they feel as though, oh, look, I really haven't done enough that's, that's really worthy of receiving a, you know, an honour like this. What's your advice to these people and to the people who know these people? I don't know anyone that started volunteering or doing some good in the community saying, you know what, I'm going to join a Rotary Club and I'm going to volunteer for my local soccer club and I'm going to do this because I want to get an Australia Day Award one day. Mm. I think people do it because it's the right thing to do, because they are helping someone else out, a whole range of reasons. And they're not expecting an award, but it's still nice to pat them on the back. Mm. And so if you know someone in your life, might be family, might be friends, might be someone you just see in the community doing some great work, it's not a complicated process to nominate them. Yep. We want a few details on what they've done, obviously, because it's a, a judging process. And I have the honour of sitting on that committee, and it's a really exciting process to go through and read all these great things that mm. people are doing. Mm. But just put the nomination in, and it's. I suppose you never know. You mightn't think the person you know is doing Lots, you might see them working away there, but when we sit down and judge and start to think about the things these people are doing, you go, wow, these people are really making a contribution. Yeah, or yeah. the sports person, one, some people might think, oh, look, you know, this person goes okay in this sport and, and they've made it to some state representation, for example, and they're doing this. And when you sit back and actually start writing it down, sometimes you go, wow, that's pretty impressive what yeah, they've done. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, I suppose people aren't thinking about these sort of things, but we ask them at least once a year to have a think about it. Mm. And so nominations close at 9 a.m. on Tuesday, the 9th of January. So okay, you've got so all over Christmas, yep. that's right. And I thought that was a good time. We, we have in the past closed the nominations before Christmas, mm. but we wanted to keep them going past Christmas, which just gets a bit tight in timing because once the actual judging occurs, then we've got to get the certificates framed and everything done there. So there's, yep. it's a fairly tight time frame from there. But one of the things that I thought would be good was over Christmas – Family and friends gather, they chat mm. about different things and maybe, oh, actually, you know what, I've been thinking about nominating Billy. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, let's have a talk about Billy and, and then you need to get someone to actually do the paperwork and fill it in. So I thought that might be a good time over Christmas to get someone nominated. Oh, that's a great idea. So looking forward to reading those nominations. It'll be fantastic. Now, Matt, uh, every week you... Uh, Go and do something there a little bit exceptional from the point of view of your travels. Um, you've got, obviously, heading off to Japan, uh, or you'll be in Japan when people start hearing this. But uh, during the week, you went down to Sydney, you went to Parliament House, and you had a few important meetings, um, as you tend to do. The first one I'd like to talk about is with the Honourable Penny Sharp. Now, Penny Sharp is, uh, just for, for all the listeners out there, uh, she's the Minister for Climate Change, the Minister for Energy, the Minister for the Environment, and the Minister for Heritage. Like a lot of the ministers, they seem to have a few titles. Um, but I'm thinking with this one right now, particularly with the renewable energy zone uh, really being a big part of our future here, uh, this uh, minister is an important one to be meeting regularly with. So how did the discussion go? Really good. And I think three of those in particular all tie in together. 
the Minister for Climate Change, Energy and Environment, those three to me tie in very nicely together. Mm. If you're trying to work out solutions for energy, then you're probably working out solutions that don't involve burning coal and that means you're probably looking at climate change and maybe that's going to be good for the environment. Yes. So that makes sense. Some of them... Some of the ministers that we've talked about before. It's like that old ad, this goes with this, goes with this, yeah. goes with this. <laughs> Just don't say the brand <laughs> name. But you're right, th- those seem to make sense together. Mm. And some ministers are loaded up with lots of portfolios. These ones, though, do make sense for that one person. So Penny was in Dubbo several weeks ago, and she was at a meeting that I was at, and she just grabbed me afterwards and said, next time I'm in Sydney, just come and have a chat to me. I'd like to just give you an update on what's happening. Mm. There wasn't time at that particular meeting to do that. So fantastic. I was in Sydney for another meeting, so we contacted Penny's office and Penny arranged a meeting. So we sat down and just talked about a few things. And I suppose the main thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that she'd made an announcement back in October where she said there's $128 million that's been allocated to the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone as a forward payment on all the riches that you'll receive as time goes on. Now, keep in mind... There are proponents that will be paying community benefits funds to the three councils in our... So that's a separate payment thing again. That's a separate payment thing. There's Energy Co. who are building the transmission lines. Right. They'll have a little bit of money. They'll be taking a small percentage of all the money that's paid by the transmitters or the the people that are producing power. Uh, They'll clip the ticket is the term that's often called. But basically, there's a small percentage will be paid to them and we'll get a small percentage of that of those three councils. But what Penny said in that announcement, and I'm paraphrasing it here, was that that's happening in the future, but some of these communities need to see some of that change now, see Mm. some of the benefits for the renewable energy zone right now, which Mm. made a lot of sense. So the announcement was... $128 million that state government is going to be giving to three to four council groups. Three councils. Three councils over the next four Four years. years. That's right. Now, again, when you say giving... I the way it was described was a forward payment. So in other words, right. if we didn't get this money, we would always get it down the line when Energy Co started having power on its transmission lines and therefore there'd be a percentage that was paid by the various producers of power mm. and then we'd get a small percentage of that. But this was a forward payment. Now, if you break that down, you say $128 million over four years, that's about $32 million over... Each year, if you like. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, if I do the maths here, 32 million, and there are three council areas, so a bit over 10, $10.6 million, say, for example, per year for each council over the next four years. Well, gee, we could use that. So that was really when Penny said, so well, what can I do for you? I said, Is okay. there any strings attached to this, or is this just simply like a government grant? For $10 million, you can put and spend however you want. There will be guidelines, right. we'll have to put some applications in. And I don't know the exact amount yet. My math says it's going to be about $10.6 yeah. million in yeah. the next year. And that's what I said to Penny. I said, you've made the announcement. When can we get a hand on some of this money? Yeah, so, that's right. And that's some of the advantages of having these meetings with various ministers. Yeah. How can we do this? And what's it look like and when? And what are the guidelines, etc. So the guidelines will come out probably the beginning of January. There'll be what – you, what you're really trying to do is make an impact – on the local government area hmm. for a large number of people. So hmm. an economic impact, for example, it's not about saying we've got $10 million, let's go and give it to some clubs for some new footy shirts or yeah. some soccer boots or whatever. Major project ideas. Major projects. Things maybe. like maybe the Wiradjuri Cultural Centre and things like that possibly. Things like that. Things that yeah. are going to make a difference in our economy. And most importantly, this is the crucial thing that we've got to be careful of at Council, 
is things that wouldn't be funded elsewhere. Mm. So the Rotary Cultural Tourism Centre sounds like a great idea, but... But there's other funding availability. That's right. We've yeah. got other funding applications in for that, okay. for example. Roads, sure, we could spend $10 million on the roads in a heartbeat, but yeah. is that the real economic drive we want? And are those roads going to be funded by other areas of government or mm. our normal rates mm. income that we've got there? But I'm sure for $10 million we can get creative. Exactly right. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to get creative mm. to make something happen that's going to change the economy. I keep talking about the economy of Wellington in particular will be transformed yeah. by this res. Yeah. Our job, if we're successful, we'll look back in 10, 15 years' time and say, Wellington is dramatically different. We did a great job with the riches that we had from that renewable energy zone. Mm. And mm. you see around the world, different places have riches and, and oil, I think, is probably one of them. Yep. You look at a, a somewhere like a... Uh, Abu Dhabi, yeah. you maybe look at somewhere like a Dubai, Dubai yeah. and they took money they had that they knew they weren't going to have forever yes. and they transformed their entire economy. We've got to do that, maybe not to the extent of Dubai, but we've, That'd got, be to, nice. <laughs> we've got to do that with Wellington. Build a new giant Bash Khalid or something in there, you know? Something like that. that, 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 that uh, See it from miles away. That'd be a tourist is. attraction, wouldn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we don't want to do is look back in 10 or 15 years' time and say, what have we changed? Mm, What's mm. different now in Wellington as a result of these billions? And I'm mm. talking anywhere from 10 to $20 billion of investment will occur around the renewable energy zone we've got yep. here. If it's no different, we failed. Yep. If we can make a difference and transform that economy, we've been successful. So, See, I can understand your passion. Um, and, and this is the thing, is that you've been very, very passionate about this from the start. And uh, I know there's been you know, cynics out there in regards to the, the level of passion that yourself and others provide, but it, it's it's one of those things. This is the way the future's moving. You know, it, it, you're not going to stop this. This is this. It's already set out in place. You're talking billions of dollars of investment. They're not going to suddenly build all of this and say to go. Well, I tell you what, let's go back to coal. Yeah. You know, let, let's let's go back to set up some more gas lines. Let's go back to to doing this. No, guys, that's not the way this is moving forward. We we have to move forward from this. Plus, as you're saying here, the financial benefits are there. The options are there. The state government's now giving out money. They're potentially $10 million a year over the next three to four years. You've got your own company groups that are giving, going to be giving out community grant money. You've got Energy Co going to be giving out money. Plus, of course, you've got the infrastructure that's going to be set into place. Plus, you've got the people moving into the areas. This is this is our future, and it's a very, very exciting time. So I fully get your passion because this is exciting. It is, and I often joke with people when they say, right, how do we stop these wind turbines being put up? And I joke, and, and I, I make it a much longer story than I'll tell now, but I, I say, look, go down to Bondi Beach and just stand there and build a little sandcastle on the, the foreshore or on the beach there and, and maybe put your hand up and just tell the tides to stop coming mm, in. Mm. And once you do that, then come back and stop the renewable energy zone going forward because That's I right. think it's probably about as hard, although stopping the moon rotating around the earth might be a bit harder than stopping a res, but, <laughs> but I, I, I go it's, to that it's, level it's because... It's that sort of analogy though, isn't it? It's it exactly is. It's right. happening. It's going forward. Yeah. You're not stopping the moon spinning around to move the tides. You're not stopping these reses going forward. We're not stopping the fact that coal is going to be a yesteryear way of producing electricity. Yeah. So it's happening and you can do two things. You can bury your head in the sand and complain and say, this is terrible, please stop it, or embrace it. If you yeah. think it's not going to be stopped, then how do we take advantage of it? And that's really the attitude that I'm mm. taking. But Penny was also good. She wanted to know what we're doing about some of the ways we might house people, because we've got a housing problem now. Yes, yes. We've got all these people that want to move from around the world to be in Dubbo. Yep. We're talking, we've got a report that went to council that says that we will need approximately 6,000 people over the next five years, maybe a bit longer, mm. where 
we need to have all these projects and some other projects that are happening as well, not just res projects, but some other projects. Yeah. So where are we going to house those people apart from the normal people that want to live here as well? So Penny was interested in some of the solutions we're putting forward there and I'll talk more about some of those. I don't want to make this podcast too long today because there's some yep. really detailed solutions in there. Yep. But some exciting things happening around that sort of housing solution as well. So it was a good conversation. Always good to have conversations with ministers. Always good to be invited to come along and give updates and also mm. a good chance to find this out. This part of the reason why you're, ga- you're going down there regularly. You know, to exactly see these right. ministers, you know, to have these conversations, um, to meet these people so that the benefits are huge. You want to be in the house. You don't want to be on oh, the that's outer. right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely right. Now, whilst down in Sydney, you also caught up with the Honourable Jenny Atchison, which is the, uh, well, she's the Minister for Regional Transport and Roads. We talk a lot about roads, and particularly after the floods, roads, 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 and more roads was the conversation. So how's the road talk this time with Jenny? Well, it's one of those rare occasions that I got to say thank you to the Minister. And so this meeting was part of our regional cities, New South Wales group that we've got, 15 councils around that. I chair that particular group. And so we do have meetings in Sydney where we get the, the 15 councils together, the mm. mayors and the GMs of those councils. But we also typically try and line up a few meetings beforehand with some various members of parliament. So we line one up with Jenny. And Jenny's a good friend to Dubbo. She's been to Dubbo several times for different projects, different ideas and different things she's been talking about. And I've met with Jenny a few times. In fact, the very first meeting that two of these people we met with during the week, Jenny and Ron, which we'll talk about in a moment, the mm. very first meeting both of those had when they became a minister was sitting there with regional cities New South Wales in a, a small group. I think there were probably three right. of us in that meeting. And both of them were a bit excited because, oh, this is our very first meeting today. <laughs> we're, we're a minister. We've got an office it's here very now. cool, yes, yeah. yes. So Jenny is great. But it was one of those rare, rare opportunities to actually say, thank you, Jenny. In right. the budget, there was an additional $334 million that was allocated in the budget for regional roads. Now, that's been on top of the previous funds that have been yeah, announced. Yeah, right, okay. The $390 yeah. million that was previously announced. Now, we did say thank you for that, mm. and she did say, well, that $334 million is not just for Dubbo. You realise that? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping it might be, <laughs> uh, but and not just Merry for regional Christmas, cities. Santa Claus, there it is. <laughs> that's right. It was for regional roads in general, right. but that's still, yeah. still good. And, and we're spending the money that we've been getting. Every little bit extra helps. Oh, absolutely right. And yeah. we're spending that money mm. that's going through. People are seeing roads improve. They're not perfect yet, but it takes time. Keeping in mind how much water we had through our landscape, through our mm. roads, everywhere at the end of last year, it's not even a year since that water started to recede. So I think we're mm. going okay. It starts to get much more expensive to do it much faster because you're paying either a lot of overtime or bringing in contractors that are getting very competitive for their services, so they're yeah. putting their prices up. But a good conversation with Jenny. And one of the things that was good, and this is where just that power of, of meeting, it wasn't an issue in Dubbo, mm. but two of the councils that sat around the table there with the regional cities group said to Jenny that they had a bit of a problem where they'd been given approval for some certain funding for a project. They'd signed the deed, everything was happening. They were doing the work but the payments weren't coming in from the government. Oh. So not a great situation for a council to be. Now, the council's yeah. not about to go broke. Yep. They've got enough cash in the bank they can keep funding it, but they said, we can't keep doing this particular project if no money's flowing in from it's it. It's very strange, though. Like, normally it is. State government's pretty good at that, aren't they? They are pretty good at paying, and I think yeah. from Jenny's perspective, it's just there is so much happening at the moment. It's mm. so busy, and it's a new government. So you've got new staff in some situations that are coming in. So mm. getting everyone up to speed and keeping up to all the things that are happening in particular with roads, I think it was a challenge. But anyway, that was great. Jenny scribbled it down, took it on board, and I'm sure she was going off to talk to some staff after Mm. that meeting to say, can you just get these councils paid? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. It's not a good look. But again, a lot of value in meeting with Jenny, and and I 
I think Jenny is very genuine. She's got a good background in local mm. business, so she's she's been involved in local business in Maitland, and she gets some of those things like mm. cash flow Absolutely. from a local business perspective. That starts to hurt, so she understands some of those things. So, yeah, good to see Jenny involved there and great to be meeting with her. Ah, good on her. Now, the final person I want you to uh, give me a bit of an update on and how the meeting went with, uh, with was with uh, Ron Honig, uh, Minister for Local Government. So you had a chance to meet with Ron as well. So how'd that go? Yeah, and again, as I mentioned before, Ron, when he became minister, mm. we were the first ones to meet with Ron as well. So mm. uh, he, he remembers us fondly in terms of the Regional Cities Group. What was really good about this is that Ron has got incredible experience as a mayor. He spent a long time as a mayor in Sydney. Right. Credible experience in local government, yep. and he's a minister for local government. So okay. that makes sense, someone yeah. with that background and experience. But Ron sat down in the meeting and he said, okay, tell me about region areas. I've got lots of experience and knowledge around Sydney councils and how things operate there. I want to know more about regional councils. We went, fantastic. Uh, Let's talk him. to you about some yep. of those differences. And it doesn't take very long to point out some differences. So, for example, in Sydney – you don't have to worry about water because you've got Sydney water. Mm. You don't have mm. to worry about sewerage because Sydney water take care of that as well. Mm. So just to say, Ron, we've got roads, rates and rubbish, but mm. we've got water. We're producing water. Now, that's a pretty important job to do because we don't want to make the LGA sick. Yeah. If we don't get it right at the water treatment facility, yeah. we potentially have Our a, portfolio is much larger than most of oh, the uh, portfolios in Sydney oh, councils. Absolutely, bigger yeah. than all of them. So we talked about the fact that we own water treatment, we own sewage treatment, we own things like airports, mm. we own sale yards, mm. we own childcare, yeah, we own caravan right. parks. There are some councils that own health clinics, so they might mm. employ some nurses and then bring doctors in on a local basis. Mm. Some councils own hairdressing studios because mm. that was important to their council. One thing we don't own, Ron, is uh, paid car parking to the we great extent. We don't, that's right. <laughs> so Ron was all ears and he mm. was very interested in some of these differences there, even just the rating structure, farmland rating. Mm. Ron didn't do any farmland rating in a Sydney council for some mm. strange reason. I can't work that out. That's right. So I actually think that was a really positive meeting with Ron Good. because he needs to just make sure that when he's making decisions around local government, mm. it's not just his experience. And he has got a huge amount of experience, but not just his experience mm. in that Sydney environment. It's really the experience of 128 councils that needs to be taken into account. Mm. So I think that was a very productive meeting. Just briefly after that one as well, it's great to meet with ministers, but we also met with Joe McGurr, who's the member for Wagga, independent member for Wagga, right, right. and also met with Helen Dalton, who's the independent member for Murray. Mm. And even though they're not in government, they're not ministers, mm. independents at the moment, because it is such a tight parliament that you've got uh, in terms of the numbers with Labor and the Coalition, those independents play a very important role. But it's also good because both Joe and Helen are from regional areas. Helen in particular comes from a farm. So when you talk about regional issues, when you talk about things that are important regionally, Mm. they get it. And so we want them as well as advocates for regional areas in talking to the Ron Honigs of the world to make sure that Mm. they fully understand it as well. And it's one of their colleagues. reinforce the message almost. Oh, yeah, that's right. So no, good meetings. That took up most of Wednesday, I think we got there about Wednesday lunchtime, took up most of Wednesday afternoon in terms of just having those meetings and having those good discussions. Now, Thursday, uh, you managed to uh, catch up with the Regional Council New South Wales group and you had a uh, couple of presentations from a few, few different groups here. In particular, let's start off with the first one with the New South Wales Ports. Well, I'll run through the, the four different groups I, I met with. So this was Regional Cities New South Wales. Mm. And again, this is the group of 15 
councils that we've got, and they're all cities. They're up the coast, down the coast, up as far as Tweed, down as far as Albury, mm. inland, Dubbo, Tamworth, uh, Orange. Because you meet with these guys fairly regularly, don't you? Quarterly is the normal yeah. process. Sometimes we'll do extra things, but typically quarterly. Mm. You share ideas, you share common problems, you share common solutions, really important. Even the e-planning portal, which is not proving to be fantastic mm. from the government, one of the discussions on the day was how many extra staff are you putting on at your council? So one of the, the mayors said, we've got one extra staff member just to do the e-planning portal. So a perfect mm. example of cost shifting. Yep. And then around the room, the different councils talked about anywhere from one to two staff, depending on how many mm. DAs they might be processing. So mm. sometimes you might think, oh, why are we taking so much time with this? We've got one staff member just doing this. But then when you talk to 15 other councils, you think, mm. well, it's not just me. There was obviously a problem there. Yeah. So four different groups we had come and do presentations to us. Sometimes mm. we'll get some members of parliament come along on the day, but we met with so many the day before. Mm. We focused on some different meetings. We met with New South Wales Ports. Yep. So that's the organisation that has the 99-year lease for Botany, Port Botany and Port Kembla just to get a bit of an idea from that and lots of information there. But the, the one thing that really captured my mind out of that was that for every 10 containers that come in to Port Botany that come in full of goods, yep. four containers go out full of goods. Yeah, right. So we've got a That's huge discrepancy. That's that basic exports versus imports discussion. It is, isn't, isn't it? it? Right That's there. right. Now, yeah, yeah. we do do bulk exports as well. We do bulk exports of grain or... Mm or different or uh, coal, that type of thing. But in terms of containers, that's a problem. And if we get more exports going out, say manufactured goods, that would actually make transport cheaper for us because when those ships bring in full containers, when they take away empty containers, it's mm. still taking up room on their ships. They've got to get those empty containers back somewhere else to be filled up again. But if someone was paying for that going out, paying for that freight to go out, mm. that would obviously reduce the cost of freight overall. So okay. lots of interesting things there, but that was fascinating. We also met with Realm. Now, Realm is doing a project for us, for Regional Seas New South Wales. Right. We got $400,000 from the state government in the previous government to do what we call a pinch point program. Mm. And what mm. that is, is about looking at different areas across the state, not just one local government area. And there's no way we'd be able to get this sort of project going as 15 individual councils. But as a collective, we took the idea to the state government and we said, we know there are freight pinch points across the state. They go across multiple LGAs, or sometimes they might be in between our city LGAs in some smaller council areas. Yep. We want to investigate those and find where those pinch points are so we can present you with so a these program. these like congestion points of congestion traffic, points. Yeah, yeah, that's right. right. Okay. And so they're impacting freight across the state. Mm. So, so far, and, and it was an update from our contractors called Realm, R-H-E-L-M, mm. and it was an update from them. And so, so far, they've identified 102 pinch points across the state. Yeah, right, okay. And they'll continue on that now and basically put together a business case for each of those 102 pinch points and the approximate cost to actually repair or fix right. or alter those. Would that then go back to state government to say, hey guys, we'll then have these a document. problems? Yeah, we'll have a document. And I've already talked to Jenny about yeah. it. We'll have a document. We'll take to state government and say, here are the 102 mm. pinch points. She must Here's become a like a consultancy group for the state government. <laughs> well, we Employee consultancy did, group for your group, but then they can become the consultancy <laughs> group for them. <laughs> we did say that we're probably doing some of the work of the state government yeah. of Transport for New South Wales. Having said that, they're paying for it, so yeah. I'm okay with that. But it gives you significance and importance as a group then too for the state government. Well, the state government then would want to talk to us more about Absolutely. those. And we're yeah. rating those in low, medium and high priority areas. Mm. And so we'll be able to say to them, here are the high priority areas. Some of those might be expensive, but some of those involve things like uh, ring road around some particular oh, yeah, cities, yeah, for example, yeah. to basically remove some of the congestion that might occur that 
adds to the congestion in that city for mm. other areas as well as congestion on through traffic. Mm. So that's a, a good project, good update. We also met with the Department of Planning. Right. Now, the Department of Planning, we've had issues with, with regional cities for a long time because they continually under-forecast our population growth. Mm. When we, then sp- we actually spoke about this, haven't we, in regards yeah. to that? Yes. When we then see the census data come out, we say, well, they got it wrong, and that's had an impact mm. on this city because when a state government sits down to look at planning, they say, right, we need so many teachers and so many nurses mm. and so many police in that area. Now, over the next 10 years, we're going to grow by that much in that city, so here's what we estimate we need. If I'm a business looking to expand my business, mm. I might look at, different cities or different states that I might move my business to or open a new branch in. Mm. And I know many years ago when Masters, remember the, the hardware store yes, that started yes. up in opposition to Bunnings? Yep. It didn't end up going that well. They either closed it down or they mm. just stopped expanding. Yes. And I remember talking to Masters about opening up in Dubbo because they were looking to open up in Dubbo. Mm. And they had a whole range of data points they were looking at mm. to see whether or not they should open up. And certainly the projection of growth was one of those data points. So mm. businesses do definitely look at that data. So we had the Department of Planning sitting in the room and we had lots of stories from different councils, including Dubbo, mm. across the room. We actually hired Bernard Salt, the demographer, All right, yes, many yes, years ago, yes. back in the Dubbo City Council days, and got him to do a report, or, or the organisation he was working for, to do a report to say what the population growth would be based on a range of factors that we were aware of in Dubbo. And it was way over mm. what the forecast growth was from the Department of Planning. And looking back now, Bernard was much closer. Closer to the truth than what the other ones were. Than the Department of Planning. So what was good is we've got a new department there, uh, new staff at the senior levels there. Are they open to listen to this type of discussion? And that was really comforting. They were. They didn't defend it and say, no, no, this is right, this is how we do it. They talked about the methodology, but they Mm. also talked about the fact that there are other factors that, may need to be taken into account so they're open to the information mm. coming from those councils to put the information forward to convince them mm. that the growth is going to be different. So that was fantastic. We didn't really have time to talk much about the e-planning portal. It was just a, hey, this is broken, mm. fix it. It didn't yep. go into a lot of detail. It was mainly about that population forecasting. Mm. So that's it's important. Just, it's a big one. It is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big one. And the last one we met with was Landcom. Now, it's at the La- development group. Yeah, so it's a state-owned corporation, what's called a SOC, S-O-C, mm. state-owned corporation, and they basically go out and do development. Now, typically they've done development in Sydney to try and get lots of land and lots of buildings going for people to be able to live in probably Western Sydney they're focused on. This government has said, go regional. Go west, mm. young man, go west. Yeah, right. So they've said, let's go out and talk to regional areas. I think the best area for Landcom to focus on is with crown land and unlocking some crown land mm. that's not being used in any other way. Sounds and, good. And yep. because it's crown land owned by the government, you've got Landcom owned by the government, you can work with the local council mm. and try and develop some of those areas. We've actually had a discussion with them around some crown land in Wellington, for example, because okay. we know we're going to need a lot of growth in yep. Wellington. Yep. So we had with some the discussions. And everything else. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We had some discussions before this particular meeting with Landcom and said there's some crown land there. That'd be nice for you to look at. They typically only do things on a fairly large scale. That's the way they've been mm. used to working. Mm. And so we looked at that. Unfortunately, at this stage, we don't know where it's going to go, but after those discussions started very shortly afterwards, there was a, a land claim activated on that Crown oh, land by okay. the Lands Council. Disappointing. So, well, we've got to see what happens with that. Maybe mm. they've got some great use they want to have for that Let's particular so. land. Maybe they can help develop some affordable housing for Aboriginal tenants, potentially. Mm-hmm. But let's see where that goes. But again, Landcom 
and Crown Lands have got some expertise in dealing with these. Mm. So let's see how they go. But it was really just a presentation by Landcom to say, we're here, this is our model, this is how we operate. If you need any help or any councils need us to go and help you out with any projects, come and talk to us. So it was really just, again, that relationship building, but also hearing about some of the other projects they've got going on around the state just to see if that might fit in with our oh, area. Good. So, again, something that was good to hear across that broader collective. So a good meeting on Thursday, yeah. tied up most of Thursday going through those discussions. Well, mate, it's going to be that time, end of the podcast, and uh, moving towards the limerick of the week. So what have you got for us this week? I couldn't help go past the citizenship. I've probably done a limerick on citizenship before, but... You I'd, probably have, but I always enjoy your citizenship one. I do like the fact that we've got all these people moving to Dubbo. Yes. So this week it's all about people coming to Dubbo. From the north, the south, east and west, Dubbo's their choice. It's the very best. With cultures so rich, life's a wonderful stitch. In this city, we're all joyously blessed. Oh. I love it. I love the actions, too, that you put into that one as well. Like, listeners can't see it, but I can. All right, folks. Well, look, Matt, have a wonderful uh, trip over there to Japan and have a safe trip, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about it next week as well. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Until next week, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dublin Regional Council.